I was picked on quite a bit as a kid. Ralph, I don't know why I looked at you when I said that. I, I no offense, brother. <laughs> when I was in sixth and seventh and eighth grade, I, I remember uh, even ninth grade were extremely difficult for me. I was teased, I was made fun of, I was pushed around, I was just flat out bullied. And one memory that I have was when we were in middle school, uh, probably 7th or 8th grade, we went to something called Bible Camp. And Bible Camp was something that our conference did uh, there in Oklahoma where I grew up. And we would go to the summer camp uh, about fall time, and we would go for this thing called Bible Camp. And I, have no, I don't even remember what we did there. Um, I know that we were supposed to do stuff with the Bible, but that is what I, I don't remember that part because the memory that I have embedded in me was, well, what happens in the cabin. And I remember, uh, and I'm still to this day, I, I'm not one to stay up late. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't like to stay up late. It, sometimes, you know, you can't help it. You just can't sleep. But usually, uh, I'm one that goes to bed fairly early. And back then, it was no different. And unfortunately, when you're the first kid to go to sleep in a room full of boys in a cabin, uh, you're done for. And I was. And I remember that uh, I woke up the next morning, uh, ran to breakfast as we were all getting, we were just trying to get ready. We ran to breakfast. And as I was there, I kept getting really strange looks, kind of smiles, snickers, just kind of like, Kind of making, you know, you could just tell something was off. But I didn't know what it was. And one of my friends turned to me and they said, dude, you need to go to the bathroom now. So I, I, I run to the bathroom and at first I didn't really, I, what, for whatever reason, and I look and I'm missing an eyebrow. They had shaved one of my eyebrows off. My right eyebrow was, was gone. And come to find out, that was not the only thing that they had done to me that night. Things that I can't even share, nor do I even want to think about it. you got to think that I'm, what, 13, 14 years old? What am I supposed to do with that? I'm embarrassed. I'm angry. I'm hurt. Has someone ever made you feel embarrassed, angry, or hurt? Of course. It happens all the time throughout our life. And if we're honest with ourselves, we want something to be done. I wanted revenge. I wanted to get them back. I wanted them to get in trouble. I wanted these kids who were older than me, who should have been nice and kind and all the things that we're supposed to be as Christians, I wanted them to pay. And I don't think it's much different for us today, that when people hurt us, when people say things to us about us, they, they hurt our feelings, they embarrass us, they make us angry, we want them to pay. We want justice to be done. We live in a world where, where people do terrible things to other people and we want them to pay for it. We want justice to be done. And now we get to l read the words of Jesus to fix our hearts on what it is that he wants us to do. 
I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5 as we continue on this year-long study on the Sermon on the Mount. Last week we studied about retaliation, where Jesus said, you've heard that it was said that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you in the right cheek, turn to him the other. If anyone shaves your right eyebrow, give him your left. <laughs> you might as well equal things out. Right? But today, Jesus takes it beyond just retaliation or to not retaliate. He takes it to an entirely different level that we got to talk about. Let's pray. Father, as we open up your word, we pray that you'd speak to us today. Our hearts need it. Our minds need it. Our relationships need it. Our marriages need it. We need your word to speak to our hearts today. And I pray that your, that your voice would be clear. And that you would anoint my lips and my mind that the words that I speak are simply from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You have heard that it was said, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor. Absolutely. The Bible does say that. Leviticus says it. Throughout the Old Testament, it was something that they lived by. You shall love your neighbor. But this next part was nowhere to be found in Scripture. To hate your enemy. You've heard that it was said. This was a, one of those things where Jesus is, is bringing about a saying that they had adopted throughout their way of living for all these many years. That you shall love your neighbor and what? And hate your enemy. Nowhere in the scripture did it say that. Nowhere in the Old Testament. Nowhere in the law. Moses didn't write it down. It was nowhere to be found. How in the world did they get to a point where they said, you shall love your neighbor but hate your enemy? Where in the world would they come up with that? Well, as time went on, enemies were formed. Those who were against God. And you can actually find a, different, a few different examples of someone who wrote songs about his enemies. And you have to know that they knew those songs by heart. Let's go to a couple of them. Psalm 5.5. 5. Psalm 5.5 5 says, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. If you back up in verse 4, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And so as David is writing this song and how he views the enemies around him and, and even the enemies that he would say of God, he would, his song then says, God, you abhor them. You don't like them. You're going to destroy them. Let's look at another one. Psalm 139. What's, what's funny to me is that Psalm 139 is 
is so many people's favorite psalm. And I got to say, it's got to be, and no offense, but it's got to be one of the most bipolar songs that David has written. It is up and down and all around. Because he starts out in Psalm 39.1, Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit up and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. This is the one where, where he talks about being formed. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You formed my inward parts. You needed me together in my mother's womb. I mean, these are, these are parts that we, we recite often. We love it. Even in verse 23. Oh, let's not get there yet. Let's back up for a moment. Verse 19. Psalm 139, verse 19. If you would count them, oh, that's 18, 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Well, no wonder. That you get down to the times of Jesus after they read a song like this that David has written, that he's expressing himself and how he feels. That's not, that's not true doctrine here. It's just his song. It's his feeling. And he says, do I not hate those who hate you? They are my enemies. So, of course, we get in Jesus' day and they take that. Love your neighbor. Hate your enemy. Let's follow in the, in the songs of David. But that was never a command from the Lord. The Lord always told them that you should love your neighbor and help your enemy. And so we have, oh, by the way, look, verse 23. I hate them with complete hatred. Verse 23, search my heart, O God, <laughs> and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. You know, this idea of, of and see if there are any grievous way in me. Well, let's back up a few verses, David. <laughs> But you and I are no different. You can see how, the, how God's people, the Jews, would adopt that way of living. But we do the same thing today. Because Christians team up against the atheists. And the atheists against the Christians. And so the Christians will then automatically say, You atheists, you guys are so dumb and you guys are so blah blah and you're just saying horrible things because we don't agree the same way and so we think that they are enemies of God so they are our enemies and we don't want anything to do with them or relate with them and you may be saying well I have friends that are atheists and I don't believe that way well praise the Lord but there's many that won't have anything to do you're not a believer mm -mm, not doing it mm. and we shut ourselves off even you want to go bigger Americans find enemies everywhere. Someone who is different, even fellow Americans who think different, who vote different, are now enemies. You know, I don't know, maybe you've never experienced this, but even church members find other church members to hate. You've, never, you've probably never found that, have you? Jesus then says, because as, as we can relate to this, we, we can, whether we want to admit it or not, 
you and I have encountered people in our life that hurt us, who anger us, who frustrate us, and we consider them not for us, so they must be against us, and therefore they are an enemy. Whether we want to call them that or not. I mean, I know how we are with our, with our vegetarian way of saying things. We say, oh, I don't hate them. I just dislike them greatly. But here's what Jesus says. But I say to you, in the same way that he is saying to them about anger and lust and and divorce and oaths and all the things that he's brought up, he comes down to this right here. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you, love your enemies. Love your enemies. This was something that you can imagine that just really rubbed them the wrong way. Love our enemies. See, they had, they had made enemies of a, of a lot of different people. There was not only the, the, the Gentile, who they considered was completely a waste of their time, and they should have nothing to do with them. They won't even drink from a cup that they once drank out of. They won't take a plate of food from them. They're just absolutely not going to do it. But also think about the greater enemy that they had, and that were the, the Romans, who oppressed them, who was totally against them. And so you can imagine that when Jesus says, love your enemies, he's saying, love the Romans. Love the Gentiles. Love the atheists. Love the one who votes different than you. It, it, there's something inside that you can imagine that they felt, that you and I feel, they go, but there has to be some line to draw, Jesus. And Jesus says, the only line you're going to draw is that you're not going to treat them like an enemy anymore. You are going to love them. Not only are you going to love them, you're going to pray for them. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Another version, your version may add some things to it, like bless those who curse you or do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. While they would say that those things were added later, whatever the case is, they're not bad things. And they fit the occasion. But we're going to take it, we're going to look at these, these two things. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The word love, you want to guess which love it is? If you know the different words for love in Scripture, you would, can imagine the one that Jesus is bringing up is the word agape. Agape love. We like to use the word agape feast because we like to eat. But in this case, Jesus is talking about a love that is not attached to emotional feelings. You see, there's the other types of love. We don't, have to, we don't have time to go through all of them. But another one would be phileo love, which is that emotional feel that you get with your spouse or, or with someone that you love, your family members, even your kiddos. This, this idea that you're emotionally attached to them and you love them and you want to show that love to your, to your little babies or, or to, your, to your children who are now grown or even that phileo love to your parents how you interact with them. You care for them. You love them. Agape love is not based on feeling. 
It's based on the will. It's based on what it is that you decide to do. I believe that it would be impossible to feel love for an enemy. How do you feel that? Can you really change the way that you feel just like that? Okay, uh, I'm gonna, I choose to feel love for my enemy who has hurt me so much. It's not that easy, is it? You know that. I know that. But Jesus isn't telling us to feel it. He's telling us to do it. He's saying that you changing the way that you interact with these people, these, the, the way that you talk with them, loving your enemy. Jesus says to agape them. To selflessly extend love to someone who does not love you. Does that make anybody feel uncomfortable? <laughs> Makes me feel uncomfortable. That I'm supposed to extend love to people who are not loving toward me? I'm supposed to show kindness and respect and, and go out of my way to show them the love of Jesus, even though they are just going to take it and twist it around and throw it back in my face, that I'm supposed, to, I'm supposed to keep doing that over and over and over again? Come on, Jesus, there has to be a line that we draw. And Jesus says, love them, period. And I would say the reason that he put in the second one is because you and I probably will have a trouble with that part so what does he say pray for those who persecute you pray for those who hurt you pray for those who bully you pray for those who make you angry think of the person pray for that person fill in the blank Maybe there's multiple blanks. <laughs> Put that person at the top of your prayer list. Jesus says to love them, to pray for them. You already know who it is. You already know who it is that you need to pray for. And yes, you can pray that they will experience Jesus, that they'll experience the gospel, that they'll experience the freedom that comes in Jesus. Absolutely, we want to pray that they encounter the love of Jesus Christ. But you can go beyond just that. You can pray for specifics in their life. And this is something that I've had to do with people who have hurt me because I've put up the wall and I held on to the grudge and I said, no. I, they don't deserve my forgiveness. They're the ones that are in the wrong. I'm not going to do anything about it. And God put it on my heart to say, you need to pray for them. And I say, okay, I'll pray that they repent. <laughs> I pray that they find you, Jesus. But we can pray for their family. Or we can pray for their kids. Or we can pray for their parents. And we can pray for their job. And we can pray for their finances. And we can pray for their home. And we can pray for their car. We can pray for the car that they want and they desire. Go ahead, God, give it to them. We can pray for their health, their physical, emotional, their spiritual health. Because here's what happens. When we pray for someone, 
that we hate so much, our heart begins to change. There was a young minister that learned this truth the hard way. There was a movement in the church that they were trying to oust this pastor, trying to kick him out. And they did everything that they could. They went to the conference. They wrote those letters. They held secret meetings. See, the problem was is that the pastor unintentionally offended a church member. And they were a strong church leader. And so, someone that has that kind of clout, that kind of leadership, they went to work. And boy, did they get it done. There for a while, it it looked as though that this guy was going to get his wish. And so the pastor, he began to feel bad for himself. He began to nurse those bad feelings, and pretty soon he became angry and bitter and full of resentment. He just couldn't understand why this respected older leader had turned on him. He had done nothing wrong to deserve this. And in spite of his training in theology, this young pastor gave way to anger and resentment because surely the Lord would not expect him to take this kind of abuse. In the midst of all of this that was going on, the pastor still had to prepare his weekly sermons. And he came to this verse on the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He tried to rationalize the text. He tried to say, this this can't apply to me. There's got to be a context for this. There's got to be something different. But he couldn't convince himself that these words were not for him. And as it often does, the Holy Spirit continued to bring these words to his heart. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. These words haunted him day by day by day. They kept him awake at night and finally he yielded to the Lord's command. He said, I clenched my fist, I gritted my teeth, and I began praying for the louse. And he said, then the strangest things began to happen. He said, I discovered that you can't pray for somebody and go on hating him. Your hatred turns to tolerance. Your tolerance turns to understanding. Your understanding then turns to compassion. And your compassion leads to forgiveness. And your forgiveness leads to love. He goes on to share, No, we never did become great friends. But it wasn't my fault that we didn't. I forgave him and he was no longer 
my enemy. Nothing demands more trust in the Lord than praying for those who persecute us. It requires humility. But it can turn an enemy into a friend. How many marriage difficulties could be overcome by praying for the other? How many church divisions could be healed if we prayed for each other? How many international tensions could be eased through prayer? You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, understand that, that he's not saying you do these things so that you can be this. You are already this, and so you will do these things. We don't, the way that, the way that he's, he's writing this, this isn't trying to become. This is who you are. It's kind of like the idea, if you've ever heard the term, like father, like son. And so because the Father is like that, and because you are a child of His, something changes in you, and you will love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, and He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Friends, loving people who love you is easy. Loving people who hate you is not. And so what Jesus is saying is that what you're about to do is not easy. But this is what I'm calling you to do. As a disciple of Jesus, as a son or a daughter of God, this is what I'm calling you to do, to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. And then he says, therefore, in verse 48, you therefore, now therefore is important. We know this even in Paul uses therefore a lot. Therefore is in summation, because of all the things that I have just said, this is what I want for you, okay? This therefore is important. It's, it's important because oftentimes this verse is taken out of context, and we don't, we don't want to do that. Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Has this verse ever bothered anybody? <laughs> Is this one of those verses that you look at and you go, oh dear. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. There are dangers to two different extremes when it comes to this verse. And especially if you're taking it out of context. One, we can fixate on perfectionism. And this idea that I must be sinless in order to become a son or daughter of, of God. And so we become fixated on what? Our behavior. What is it that I do? The other extreme 
is that we'll take this word and we'll say, well, it doesn't mean that at all. It means to be mature, spiritual mature. Uh, it's also a word that means to be whole. And so we just disregard this idea that Jesus isn't setting this great standard, right? I mean, that's the reality is, is what Jesus said is what he meant. And so while he may be saying perfect, whole, complete, mature, can we just... Can we just imagine this for a second? Have you ever tried to be as mature as God? (laughs) I mean, if you swap the word around and say, well, I don't have to be perfect. He's just talking about being spiritually mature. Well, are you as spiritually as mature as God? Am I as spiritually mature as God? I mean, let's, let's, Jesus said what he said. So instead of just dismissing it and saying that this doesn't apply or this is, uh, or, or I just, I really need to get everything perfect in my life. Let's just back up for a moment and see what it is that Jesus is trying to tell us. When he says that he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust, it's telling us what kind of love God has for his creation. Whether that creation is for him or whether that creation is against him. Just as God showed love to us while we were enemies, we must show love to those who hate us. Remember in Romans chapter 5, let's just go there for a minute. As we've been talking about being free from sin, we've been talking about the freedom and victory that comes in Jesus Christ. It's because of what Jesus has done. It's because of what he did on the cross and why he chose to do it. And in Romans chapter 5 and verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For the one For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love to to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is crucial. We have to understand that we, we always like to say after conversion that I'm this Christian, yes, Jesus died for me. He died for you before you even ever thought about becoming a Christian. He chose to go on the cross when you were still thinking that I still want to live life my way. When we mocked him and we were enemies with him because we were choosing the selfish path, that's when God chose to do it. That's when Jesus chose to do it. That's when he said, I will give them freedom from this sin. I choose to love them and I will go to the cross for them even if they don't choose me. That's agape love. And that is what Jesus is calling us to do. Even if they don't apologize, even if they don't respect me, even if they shave the other eyebrow, I will choose to love them and pray for them. That's what Jesus is calling you and me to do for those people that hurt us so greatly. How? Honestly, I have no idea. This is one of those things that as you would think that a pastor would have it all together. I mean, I've been hated a lot. (laughs) 
And I've had the letters written. I can relate to the young pastor. I've been there. I've done that. Done it here. The reality is, is it's really not something that you and I can implement on our own strength. So it's not one of those things that you can pep talk yourself in the mirror and be like, okay, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna love and we're going to pray today. <laughs> because naturally you don't want to do that. I'm not sure how it happens. But something in us changes when we experience the love of Jesus. It's got to be one of those great mysteries that Scripture talks about. Yes, the mystery of the gospel, but also the mystery of a transformed heart is something that I can't give you three steps to love your enemy. (laughs) I can't tell you a list of things to do so that your enemy can become your friend. I don't have that kind of I don't have that kind of knowledge or wisdom or power. The only thing that I can go off of what Jesus said, and Jesus says, is to show them love and pray for them. And in that, I believe that Jesus is going to do something. And I brought this little red book and the thoughts of the Mount of Blessing. And I may read too much today, and if I do, I apologize. (laughs) Because the part that she writes about this is something that, that is life-changing. She says, With untold love, our God has loved us. And our love awakens toward Him as we comprehend something of the length and breadth and depth and height of His love that passes knowledge. We can't understand it. By the revelation of the attractive loveliness of Christ and by the knowledge of his love expressed to us while we were yet sinners. This stubborn heart is melted and subdued and the sinner is transformed and becomes a child of heaven. God does not employ compulsory measures. Love is the agent which he uses to expel sin from the heart. By it, he changes pride into humility and enmity and unbelief into love and faith. It is something that Jesus does in us. It's something that his love transforms. People want to ask me why I talk about Jesus and talk about his love all the time is because it changes lives. It transforms people. Prophecy is important. Daniel and Revelation have their place, and we want to talk about how we need to get ready. The only way we get ready is through Jesus. And that's why I keep preaching it, is because I'm seeing you. You're coming and telling me what's happening in your lives. And I'm telling you, Jesus is changing your hearts. He's transforming you. He's turning you from the sinner that you were into his creation that he's called you to be. And you have become free in him. I'm hearing it in your voice. I'm seeing it in your face. And if you're not experiencing it yet, trust Jesus in what his word says. You are free from sin.
It no longer has a hold on you. The enemy doesn't have a cloud over you anymore. You have been set free because of what Jesus did on the cross. He transforms us. He, re- he removes the heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. If you have not experienced that yet, it's not too late. Jesus is always willing to transform our hearts. The Jews had been wearily toiling to reach perfection by their own efforts, and they had failed. Christ had already told them that their righteousness could never enter the kingdom of heaven. And now he points out to them the character of righteousness that all who enter heaven will possess. And through the Sermon on the Mount, he describes its fruit. And now is one sentence he points out to secure in its nature. Be perfect as God is perfect. The law is but a transcript of the character of God. Behold in your heavenly Father a perfect manifestation of the principles which are the foundation of his government. And this is it. The government is this. She says God is love. And like rays of light from the sun, love and light and joy flow out from him to all his creation. It is his nature to give. His very life is the outflow of unselfish love. He tells us to be perfect as he is in the same manner. We are to be centers of light and blessing to our little circle, even as he is to the universe. We have nothing of ourselves, but the light of his love shines upon us. And we are to reflect his brightness. We are nothing of ourselves, but we reflect the brightness of his love and his borrowed goodness. We may be perfect in our sphere. If you are the children of God, which you are, you are partakers of his nature. And you cannot but be like him. It's the way it works. I can't describe it. I don't know. It is a supernatural thing that happens. Let his love perfect the way you love. In Christ, we lack nothing. And because we lack nothing, we have his perfect love. And if you are the children of God, you are partakers of his nature. And you cannot but be like him. An old rabbi was asked by one of his disciples, What's the worst thing an evil urge can achieve? What's the worst thing? an evil urge can achieve. And here was his answer. To make a man forget that he is the son of the king. I want to remind you, you are a child of the king. And because you're his child, he says you'll be like me. 
Don't let this verse discourage you. Let it empower you. Because he is perfect. I am perfect. It doesn't mean we're not going to make mistakes. It doesn't mean that the hurt and the anger isn't going to bubble back up. But we keep going to the love of Jesus. His love is going to keep changing our hearts. And time and time and time again, I can't explain it, but those who I once called my enemies are no longer my enemies. Some were friends. Some were not. But they are just as much a valued child of God and child of a king as I am. And I'm going to love and respect them just as God loves and respects them as well. Let his love perfect the way you love. Be open to it. Let it change you, transform you forever. Father in heaven, it's moments like these and messages like these that make me just stop and say, wow. You, God, have been so patient with us, so merciful with us, so loving and kind. Who are we to hold a grudge and to keep an enemy? Because while we were enemies to you, you made the ultimate sacrifice. And now that that freedom that you've given to us can break this bondage of hate that we have and fill it with love. And so, Lord, this week, may, your heart so- may you soften our hearts to pray for those who persecute us. May we put them at the top of our prayer list. Those who've hurt us. Those who we can't stand to even be around. We put them at the top. And we pray for them. We pray that you break through, but we also pray for their their families. We pray for their, their health. We pray for their job. We pray for their car. We pray for everything. We pray for them. And Lord, as we pray, may you soften and transform us. We may not be able to understand it. And we may not be able to explain it later. But may the supernatural happen in our lives. We thank you, Lord. Thank you, God, for loving us when we didn't deserve to be loved. Now help us to love those who we think don't deserve it. In Jesus' name, amen.